folks, James Irish here, and Pembroke is right beside me, figuratively. And when we say there are too many cartoons, but we'll watch them all, brother, we mean it. And that means even digging deep into lost media. And this show that you're about to hear us describe is nearly that. There's only seven episodes surviving that we know of. So... Once you're done listening to this episode, or even beforehand, go track some of these down. We'll wait. No, no, seriously, go on, go on. They're on YouTube, they're free. Go watch them. We'll keep waiting. (laughs) You won't regret it. Oh, we, we should probably actually start the episode. Cue the song! There are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The penny and James can sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm James Irish. And I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. Welcome once again to the Pemmy and James kind of sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. And presumably, you're back after having checked out at least one episode of The Reluctant Dragon and Mr. Toad Show, wherever you can find it, be it YouTube, archive.org, or any place else on the web that it happens to exist. It's definitely worth checking out, in my personal opinion. Yes, it is a production by Rankin Bass that is based on the literary works of Kenneth Graham, namely The Reluctant Dragon from his 1898 short story out of the book Dream Days, and Mr. Toad from the 1908 novel The Wind in the Willows, which has of course been adapted many, many times over, most famously by Disney. In fact, Disney also did did The Reluctant Dragon beforehand. Also interesting note, like in the 80s, uh, Rankin Bass would revisit the Wind in the Willows, and make a TV movie based on it. Indeed. A little more accurate. A lot more accurate. (laughs) Also with completely different character designs, but that's beside the point. Rankin Bass as a whole, this is the first time we're talking about them, and boy howdy, they're an interesting beast. They were doing outsourced animation before. That was like the big thing. Yeah, it's interesting in that Arthur Rankin Jr. and Jules Bass, their creators, their writers, their producers, their directors, Jules Bass is even a composer. But they're not artists. There's multiple artists they hired, but uh, one of the major ones they hired and used a lot, especially in this show, is uh, Paul Coker. Yep, Paul Coker Jr., who is best known for one of the things you probably think of when you hear Rankin Bass and say it to... uh, person on the street who isn't either an animation nut or someone who collects random trivia like it's second nature like me holiday specials paul coker is responsible for the designs of frosty the snowman the famous 1969 tv special he also did a lot of work for uh, mad magazine and i gotta tell you even though rankin bass is majority of their holiday special output were the uh, animagic stop-motion features like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Here Comes the Easter Bunny and like that. Frosty was a traditional 2D animation, you know, with ink and paint and cells. 
And for some reason, just everything about that special struck the right note with me. You know, between the character designs from Coker and Jimmy Durante's warm narration and Professor Hinkle's manic energy, I love Frosty growing up. Uh, see, the majority of uh, Rankin Bass's stuff are also animated uh, in Japan. And this includes the motion stuff. If not the first, they were among the first to outsource to Japan. And in particular, Frosty and this show and a few others were done by Mushi Production in Tokyo. Remy, you're a little better qualified to talk about these guys than I am. Studio was originally founded by Osama Tezuka, the godfather of anime, best known for creations like Kim of the White Lion, Astro Boy, and Blackjack, the last one of which is my favorite of his creations. Uh, he was kind of the godfather of both manga and anime. I mean, it technically existed before he did did it, but it, he was the one that really got everything on the map, for lack of better words. Though it is worth mentioning that despite being a founder of the studio, he had left the studio by the time that they were hired by uh, Rankin Bass for outsourcing. Right. It's also worth mentioning that the studio would also be one of the first to adapt Journey to the West into an animated form with Goku no Daibokin, the first Monkey King and all them anime, before well before Dragon Ball. Boy, is that a legend that Japan has taken a wild amount of varieties on. And they also created the first Japanese X-rated animated film. Well, it's gotta go some start somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it was almost the first X-rated animated film, period, but they were just barely beat by Fritz the Cat. Good old Ralph Bakshi. The movie in question, by the way, is Cleopatra. See, I have actually not seen it. I know of it, but I have not seen it. It, it is kind of surprising to hear that Japan was not the founder of that, considering how that became a big thing in Japan for quite a while there. Yeah. But back to our main subject. We, we, we're doing this digression just to give you a sense of where our subject falls into the history of animation in general. And this show, The Reluctant Dragon and Mr. Toad Show, was a flop. And it's unfortunate that that is the case. Yeah, it only lasted half a season in 1970 on ABC. And as we stated, it's very close to becoming lost media to the point where I usually start my research on these cartoons by starting at Wikipedia and then branching out. And let me tell you, the Wikipedia article on this thing is a mess. The setting, Willow March, is misidentified as Willow Marsh. With an SH, not a CH. Ugly Olaf is identified as Ugliola. Probably a misinterpretation of, of the uh, Viking accent used by uh, some of the characters we'll describe in a bit. And the episode list, rather than production order, is alphabetical order. That's weird. Yeah. So they list the first episode as A Cold Day in Willow March, Build a Better Bungalow, and A Day at the Fair. Pemi has kindly provided me with the video with Cold Day in Willow March, and it all instead includes 20,000 Inches Under the Sea, which we'll be looking at. And in a separate episode, I believe, uh, Tobias, is it? Oh, it's Sir Tobias. Yeah. So when Wikipedia is that inaccurate, there's a lot to be found about this show still somewhere. 
I also want to give uh, thanks to Charles Brubaker, or as I know, I'm at online Baker Tunes, for informing me of this show and making me aware of this show. Thank you, Baker. Yeah, it's through him. I, giving it to Pemmy is how I found out about the show, and I instantly recognized the character designs, and it was like finding a new comfy space in an old memory, which is really rare. So... I had to know more, and after Pemmy was kind enough to indulge me by doing Angry Beavers last time around, a show that he had no familiarity with, I offered to pick up on this one, which, other than the brief glimpses I'd seen, I had no familiarity with. And I, I'm sure those uh, familiar design feelings got doubled when you saw the uh, the Merlin Jr. episode. Yes. So we are going to start by talking about that, but first let's quickly set up what we have here, this is a three shorts format show. Every episode is two Reluctant Dragon episodes and a Mr. Toad episode sandwiched between them. The Reluctant Dragon is a very loose adaptation of the original story, where we're centered around the tales of Tobias, a gentle fairy tale creature cursed by the wizard Merlin to sneeze fire breath any time he sees, smells, tastes, or does anything having to do with daisies? Yep, just merely any interaction with them, because like he literally gets shown a picture of one a couple of times, and yeah, it's it's also worth mentioning that um, this isn't a scene that was. Oh, well, we should talk about the characters before I get into this. So, yeah, Tobias would love nothing more than to not harm the hair on the head of a housefly, but this curse. And the preponderance of daisies in Willow March continually puts him in awkward situations. It makes him look like a menace that he's trying desperately not to be. Thankfully, Tobias has some friends, most notably the knight Sir Malcolm Giles. Who uh, tries his hardest to keep Tobias in favor with King Herman. <laughs> yeah, Herman is a piece of work. Sadly, might be my favorite character in the show. <laughs> uh, nothing wrong with that. Sometimes pieces of work make the most fascinating characters. Like Daffy Duck. Yeah. King Herman is an outright jerk. But he's a, he's a fun jerk. The town's other most notable inhabitant is a small little blonde girl named Daisy. Who has a fondness for daisies and Tobias. And I'm sure you can already see how this is a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. And serving as series antagonists are Vikings Ugly Olaf and Irving the Bold, who you will hear me do impressions of when we get to them. Who literally come from the country of Viking land. <laughs> <laughs> and are given hysterically over-the-top Norwegian accents. <laughs> I, I do want to mention that some of the episodes get really just outlandish with how they have uh, Tobias interact with a daisy. Like this wasn't in any of the episodes that we watched because I was picking like my favorite episodes, but there's one episode that literally just has her parachute somehow from the roof of the like castle out of nowhere and just land in front of him with a daisy. <laughs> Logic does not stand in the way of the gags in this cartoon. And sometimes that's for the better. <laughs> sometimes for most of the time for the better. We'll get into when it gets worse much later. For now, let's get going with 
Merlin the Magician Jr. Oh, you he, he, he gotta talk about Merlin. <laughs> he, he does rather sound like Paul Lind, doesn't he? He really does. <laughs> he really does. He looks like Professor Hinkle and he sounds like Paul Lind. <laughs> so, we set up our episode with King Herman expecting visitors, hundreds of other kings coming to see the dragon. And he, not without good reason, expects Tobias will spot a daisy, and they'll be having flame-broiled kings for days. And that could start a war. Or worse, tariffs! But fortunately, while Sir Malcolm can't think of any solutions, King Herman remembers that the curse was done by Merlin, and Merlin's son, Merlin Jr., was doing a routine nearby recently, and that maybe he can get rid of the curse. Yeah. Despite uh, Merlin Jr. getting terrible reviews. Well, sometimes you're not as good as your dad. No. So Tobias arrives at the castle, and we get our first look at Merlin Jr., and yeah, he is the spitting image of Professor Hinkley. Maybe he... I said Hinkle earlier, sorry. (laughs) I think I did too, so pardon us. Maybe he's his uh, ancestor. See, this also has like one of the coldest lies from... King Herman, in my opinion. (laughs) Yeah, Tobias and the king have a little comedic banter with the king constantly losing his temper, despite Tobias being willing to do whatever the king says. But yeah, it's like, I I love it. Tobias comes in, it's like, is there something I can do for you, my king? And and King Herman's like, oh yes, there's something you can do for me, all right. But unfortunately, dragons live for thousands of years. Oof. (laughs) To which Tobias just is like, that was unkind, sir. <laughs> I was like, man, that's one of the coldest lies I've heard from a cartoon in the 60s. <laughs> he just literally tells poor Tobias to just drop dead practically. So Merlin Jr. comes out of hiding, and the king explains the curse. And Merlin Jr. admires his father's handiwork, admitting all he could get out of cursing his landlord was heartburn. To which, just to make sure it works... uh <laughs> Merlin Jr. does literally set him up. He's like, all he has to do is look at a daisy. Just one little daisy. Daisy! Whoosh! Fire everywhere! The uh, expressions they do on Tobias' response of trying to resist their response to daisy are always, always great in this show. So, I just want to also take a second to say that uh, Paul Coker's designs surprisingly work really good with Japanese animation. They do. They do. So Merlin consults his tome, finds Daisy-itis, and if he can successfully cure it, he'll get a bag of gold. I mean, can't turn that down. Well, the ingredients are gathered, and they need water from a polluted stream, since it kills the taste of the frankly gross goodies in the mix. I do like that line, though. It's like, because the king's like, how long does it take for this stuff to ruin? He's like, oh, it's instant. Just add polluted water. It kills the taste. (laughs) Tobias drinks the finished mix and is given these instructions. We have to go to the audio here because simply reciting these won't do them justice. Up on your tippy-toe, down on the floor, bounce on your head and shut the door. Swing your arms above your head, bite your toes and then drop dead. Hang your head between your knees, stub your toe, then you sneeze. Bite your tongue and twist your neck, close your eyes and hit the deck. And voila! Merlin Jr. claims Tobias is cured. Or so it seems... Well, yeah, at first blush, King Herman checks with a daisy, and Tobias just puts it in his hair. Becoming, isn't it? (laughs) 
and there's no whoosh. Yeah, the king is ecstatically happy, as is Tobias when he feels that he can go outside and feel that everything is okay, except... Yeah, just as Merlin is getting paid, Tobias has a sudden burst of fire breath. And Merlin Jr. explains it's a common side effect. Now he's allergic to anything green. Oh! Oof. <laughs> Big oof. So another cure is administered, and the celebration is on. Guest kings and all. Yep, he cures his allergic reaction to green stuff. And we have a great festival with many kings. King Herman even calls for Tobias to come up to meet the king just to show off. And right behind Tobias is a gaggle of the town's girls, including Daisy, and they're spreading daisies. I think even Ray Charles could see where this is going. Yep. Daisy lands on uh, poor Tobias, and Tobias, despite his best efforts to hold in the sneeze, and even, like, King Herman telling him that's an order not to not to sneeze, you're cured, Tobias! Tobias, you're cured! Don't, don't sneeze! This is an order! This is a royal decree! Turns out curing the green sickness reverts him back to the daisy curse. To which uh, the king asks for his money back and Merlin Jr. is like, don't bother me, kid. Listen, you asked me to cure the daisyitis, I cured it. You asked me to cure the green stuff, I did that. So what's it going to be? He's he's either allergic to daisies or the green stuff. It's got to be one or the other or else you have no show. <laughs> you know... He's actually right! <laughs> and poor Tobias races away in embarrassment as the cartoon closes. Hysterical fourth wall break there. <laughs> and as we close on a fourth wall break, we open our next episode, Subway Sabotage, with a similar fourth wall break. A cold open at that, in the cold land of Viking land, with Ugly Olaf and Erling the Bold, they're Vikings from Viking land, you know. Oof. <laughs> now, their goals typically involve them taking Willow March's riches, architecture, or whatever else they can get their hands on. But they're not terribly competent, making Boris and Natasha look like the crooks of the year by comparison. But boy, are they fun villains. <laughs> yeah. And granted, they're also still effective because Tobias is as gullible as Bullwinkle on his worst day. Unfortunately. Though I will give them credit for some of their... They, they do do some amazingly insane plans. I mean, it's not this one, but there is one where they do literally saw off Willow Land with a butter knife, no less, and yeah. attach it to Viking Land. Still the entire country. So in this episode, they're digging a subway tunnel to Willow March, and in a hurry... Since it's only a six-minute show! No. <laughs> and here comes the shtick. See, Irving asks what Olaf said, and Og ugly Olaf leans into the hole only to get a mouthful of dirt. And ugly Olaf bashes the diminutive Irving's helm helmet-protected head, which is so hard he hurts his fist every time. This is a running gag within the show. <laughs> yep. Now, Irving explains that the subway is our means of snatching the Willemarge Castle right from under the ground, don't you know? Aren't we scamps? <laughs> Aren't we just delightful little scamps? 
<laughs> now it's starting to turn into an Irish accent. I do apologize. <laughs> my my heritage is upset. No, I'm just kidding. I do want to say I like Irving's design a lot. It's as weird as this may sound, it's it's kind of adorable looking for a Viking. Yeah. Now ugly Olaf hits rock and calls for some dynamite, which does as much to damage him as it does the rock. And when Irving asks how it's going, he gets the shovel to the head. Except Irving's helmet is so tough it hurts my shovel. <laughs> oh, I hurt my shovel. <laughs> Underground, Irving rolls out the subway track in a matter of seconds, which is still not fast enough for Ugly Olaf. To which Irving protests, "I have as much right to a coffee break as anybody else." <laughs> Seriously, it takes him two seconds, and that's not fast enough. Hey, I'm Vikings are ruthless, man. <laughs> They reach a castle through one of the... What do you call those carts? Uh, it's it's a hand cart. Yeah. I, I do like the animation of them using the hand cart, where like, it's literally just... Since uh, Irving is so small, it's literally just Olaf doing all the work, but he's still held onto it as if he is doing the work, despite him being lifted with each push of the hand car. Yeah, I imagine Irving's trying to just shift his weight up and down as best he can. So they reach the castle, head first in Olaf's case, and set about taking down the support beam, successfully doing so with one kick from Irving. Which, of course, lands on poor Olaf. Yeah. Oh. They cart off the castle, and King Herman is protesting. Oh, you think I can't do anything about this? Well, just you wait! Help! <laughs> Yeah, Herman's cries for help are heard by Tobias, who races down to the aid of his king. Something is amiss at the castle. It turns out the castle itself is amiss. Ing. And as Tobias races down, the king can't help but insult his rescuer at every turn. Well, not to defend Herman or anything, but with how many times uh, Tobias has taken out his uh, castle, I can't say I exactly blame him. Yeah. But you're wrangling the bedroom is a bit much. <laughs> so Herman orders Tobias to take out the Vikings, but ugly Olaf claims to be the chief motorman, and my word down here in the subway trails is law. So instead, he is Tobias is told that he has to go behind the castle and push. And Tobias ex absolutely accepts without any question. Oh, doesn't it just make you want to spit? <laughs> so how are they going to get out of this mess? Well, it just so happens there's a perpendicular subway track and a modern trolley car out of nowhere. It just happens to intersect with the rails that the Vikings just put up. Yeah. And this brings Daisy onto the scene. Who, of course, has a Daisy. I don't know why you're so surprised, ugly Olaf. This happens every show. <laughs> Whoosh! The Vikings are taken out, and King Herman commands poor Tobias to lift the entire castle back into place. Which Tobias does without complaining, and Tobias even gets the support beam back in. He's a strong dragon. Yeah. And just as it seems King Herman can't be any happier, here comes Daisy again. No, Tobias, don't! It's too late. The palace is wrecked in flames. And King Herman addresses the audience, 
saying they must expect him to lose his temper, kicking and screaming. But he's a king, and he can't do that in front of his subjects. So he lowers the curtain and does it behind that. <laughs> the end! <laughs> you almost feel sorry for him. Almost. almost. <laughs> well, you want to know who I do feel sorry for? Anyone who interacts with Mr. Toad? <laughs> More specifically, the residents of Toad Hall. Who we'll be checking in with right after this break. After these messages, we'll be right back. On uh, the next Pemmy and James podcast, not every theatrical cartoon character can have the legacy of a Mickey Mouse or a Bugs Bunny. If you were to show Heckle and Jekyll, the mischievous talking magpies from Paul Terry's Terry Toon Studio, to kids today, it would likely be the first time they'd even be laying eyes on them. We go back and see if these characters have anything to say in the year 2022 in two weeks. We're merrily, merrily on our way to nowhere in particular. That's about as much of the songs I dare sing without Disney sicking their lawyers on us. Yeah, if there's anyone I don't want to get the ire of, it's Disney. Yeah. So the Mr. Toad segments, as we mentioned, are the middle portion of, of our three short format show. And this is slightly closer to the source material. Though I think it takes more of its cues from attempting to be a denser and wackier version of what Disney put out. Boy, how is it? Mr. Toad gives no Fs. <laughs> no, not a one. He's a gadabout playboy and owner of Toad Hall, where resides three long-suffering compatriots. I, I just want to say that I, I love that the, like, the theme song they play for Mr. Toad, like, refers to him as carefree. I'm like, I think this guy is beyond carefree. <laughs> I, I think I agree with Baker who referred to him as a chaos god because of just how little he gives about anything. <laughs> yeah. And this lack of cares frequently infringes upon the safety and sanity of timid, humble mole, the foul-tempered water rat, and the wise, aging badger. I, which honestly makes you wonder why they are friends with him to begin with. <laughs> Free room and board. And and Mr. Toad's rich probably helps too. Yeah. I, I do like the accents they give them though, because like, I like that rat is just furiously Irish. <laughs> and, and badger is surprisingly relaxed Scottish for for all things considered. Yeah. So let's dive in, figuratively and literally, with our first Toad show, 20,000 Inches Under the Sea. Which starts with uh, Mr. Toad interrupting uh, Rat's bath. Yeah, it's a contentious scene as Rat just wants to be left alone, but Toad just wants to grab something for his latest invention. The bathtub. Just grab what you want and be on your way. Jolly good what? Yeah, it's like this all over the manor, with Mole's horticulture highly delicate orchids being ruined by toads snatching their oxygen tanks and glass dome. And Badger's cake cooking is interrupted by Toad running off with the stovepipe. And to say that his uh, friends are frustrated is an understatement. 
all this madness is in the name of building a submarine. To which Toad is like, are you upset, my friends? Well, that jolly what? That's okay. I'll make it up to you by uh, the signature voyage on my new invention, this submarine. Yeah, and this submarine is part TARDIS, because it's clearly bigger on the inside. Good old cartoon logic there. Yeah, but hey, they're British. Well, two of them aren't. You, well, <laughs> they're from the United Kingdom. Also, get used to hearing Jolly Watt a lot, because Toad says that a lot. Yeah, practically a verbal tick. Jolly Watt? <laughs> so Toad shows them around, and he takes them on their journey right then and there, without even asking them if they want to go. As we've stated, Toad gives no crap about anything. <laughs> and when Badger demands they return to the surface, it turns out Toad forgot to install anything to do just that. We can't get back to the surface. Never give it a thought, Jolly. What? <laughs> but Toad is sure something will turn up. Which, you know, he probably shouldn't have said because that practically summons a giant octopus. That immediately entangles the submarine. Yeah. Okay, I know this is supposed to be a wacky gag cartoon, but where is Toad Hall in relation to the Atlantic Ocean? How far did Toad pedal out in half a minute to get far enough and deep enough to an environment that could sustain an octopus as big as his submarine? This cartoon hey. is seriously fast-paced. Hey, man, they're they're on the UK. It's a it's an island. <laughs> Anyhow, the octopus grapples the sub, and Toad puts on a diving helmet and tries to reason with the brute. When that fails, he uses force. By tickling it. Yeah, tickle force. Now, I'm less surprised that Octopi are ticklish than the fact that they have such high-pitched voices. Get a load of this. And once the octopus's grip is loosened and he departs, Toad commandeers a seahorse Aquaman style and returns to the sub to beseech his companions to enjoy the sights. I'm happy you made the Aquaman reference, because if you didn't, I would have. But unfortunately for them, that doesn't it doesn't take too long for another creature to take interest in their submarine. Yeah, Mole spots a shark, which Badger and Toad identify as the Loch Ness Monster. Now wait just a minute! In, in Badger's case, he might just be referring to it as a giant monster, and you know, he is Scottish. Toad, on the other hand, has no excuse. Well, well hold, here's the problem. Loch Ness is a body of fresh water. Octopi, seahorses, and sharks don't live outside salt water. This is basic marine biology. Furthermore, the loch is in Scotland, and Toad Hall is in England, a good deal south. And that's ignoring the fact that Nessie herself is traditionally portrayed as a plesiosaur-like creature, not a shark. To quote Again. Bugs Bunny... Oh, I'm dying! <laughs> Thanks for one of my favorite Bugs Bunny quotes. Um, You're welcome. <laughs> again, I think Badger is just being, you know, exaggerant to what they're seeing. Toad, on the other hand, again, has no excuse. Okay, I, I guess Who that's again fair. responds with, like, no cares, even when the shark freaking swallows them and is still like, no big problem. <laughs> So yeah, the swallowed whole, Toad 
lights a candle, and resolves to give the beast gas by unhooking an oxygen tank. And we have more scale issues with the sub as Toad and company pop out. It's a cartoon. <laughs> I got... That's all I got. I just love how they're literally swallowed by this shark, and Toad is, like, acting like it's literally not a big deal. He's like, oh, no, no, no worries. <laughs> Badger points out that the candle is a hazard if the flammable oxygen is unleashed. Now that the science suits the gag, it's back in play. But... Badger's voice and advice is coming from Toad's animated mouth. Oh! This has the unintended side effect of making Toad pulling this stunt look even more daft than the script actually intended. Don't again. Yeah. So, gas goes boom, Sub flies out of the sea onto dry land, and Toad's companions are distraught with Water Rat, what else, threatening violence. Of course. He's Irish. I mean... (laughs) Watch it. Hey, I, I have Irish heritage, too. In fact, my heritage is Irish and Scottish. Oh, oh this cartoon's going to be on double probation then at this rate. <laughs> I mean, the, the only way they could make Water Rat even more stereotypical is if they had him with a beer every second. <laughs> so to cheer his friends up, Toad suggests food. And though Water Rat is still aiming to clobber Toady, they all revolt when it turns out he's serving them lobster, clams, flounder, and squid. Because the last thing they want right now is seafood. And Toad just wonders that if they weren't hungry, they should have just said so. (laughs) Not understanding what the problem is at all, because, as mentioned, Toad gives no craps. Yep. Well, that's a great gag to end on, at the very least. And, of course, it also ends with Toad trying his own food and mentioning how delicious it is. Again, not realizing what the issue is. Despite my little rant, this was still a a fun, funny episode. And a brilliant just example of just how insane Toad is. And if you want more examples, we got them right here with our next episode, Ghost of Toad Hall. Shall we what? We open fast with a fireman's motor car left outside Toad Hall and a weasel seen sneaking around it as Toady is, of course, drawn to it. He loves the vehicle instantly, as Toad is quite the fan of motor vehicles, but he is 100% sold when he notices the siren on it. Yeah, and the weasel offers to sell, but Toad remembers Badger's advice of not signing anything a weasel hands him, so the weasel just cranks the siren again. And that's enough for Toad to instantly sign the contract. You could say he was under the spell of a siren song. Cue the cricket. Ah! Nice one. To say uh, Toad is an impulse buyer might be an understatement. Yeah. For a guy with a lot of money and buying so much stuff, he would make Uncle Scrooge probably vomit in response. Luckily for him, there was no money involved in the in the transaction. Unluckily for him... The weasel actually handed him the deed to Toad Hall. Oh! Now the weasels own Toad Hall, and Toad and his three residents have all been kicked out, much to uh, the disgruntlement of Badger. Yeah, he scolds Toad, but Toad just insists that it had a siren, and does an impression for emphasis. Now they need to get the hall back, and Toad's first idea is to blow the whole place up. (laughs) Well... 
He'd definitely get rid of the weasels. Yeah. At the at this point, I'm convinced Toad has gone from giving zero Fs to giving negative Fs. <laughs> He's actively removing Fs from the fabric of the world. Like Baker said, he's he's practically a chaos god. Mole, thankfully, has a safer idea. Haunt the hall and pretend to be ghosts. It's an inverse Scooby-Doo plot. Also, is it me or does... uh, I've just noticed that in the episodes, I like, sometimes it seems like Water Rat has a monocle and sometimes he doesn't. Yeah, it would be in keeping with the uh, design from at least the Disney program. I don't know about the original book, though. I, I cannot say, as I never did read the original book. Me neither. Anyhow, Badger it has to stay behind because of his gout. It would make him move too slowly. Rich man's disease, you know. Yep. Well, I actually know someone who has gout and is definitely not rich, but that's beside the point. Yeah. Once night falls, they the group take turns, and Mole goes first, dressed as a skeleton, as a skeleton, spooking himself with his reflection in the process. He almost said Skellington. Yeah. <laughs> Name him Jack. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Mole is not a very good at haunting. No, his attempt in the dining hall is too polite and too distinctively like his own self to fool the lead weasel, who just wallops him with a leg of mutton. Which Toad is enamored and amused by. <laughs> of course he is. It's like, hit you with a... Leg of mutton he did? What creativeness! <laughs> How creative! Water Rat reasons it's because Molly's too timid. And so he decides to go up next as a classic bedsheet ghost, resolving to be less gentle. And his method of haunting... Maybe it's a little too literal. Haunt! 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 Exact quote, folks. <laughs> but the lead weasel tosses ketchup at the sheet, rousing Water Rat's temper, and he blows his own cover, figuratively and literally. Why? Why you be why you be ruining my sheets? Oh. It's mutton for him! <laughs> yes, poor Water Rat also gets hit with the mutton. Which means the poor subjects have to rely on Toad. <laughs> yeah, he's up as a headless horseman type, complete with jack-o'-lantern. And... This actually scares the weasel. Unfortunately, Toad is too enamored by his own routine that when he notices that the weasel is scared, he feels the need to show him how the trick works. Uh, Toad realizes his mistake and smacks himself with the mutton. Rule of three. And then jumps out the window, like literally breaking the window. It's one of those windows that doesn't open, period. Self-defenestration! I, the, I gotta admit, that scene just makes me laugh. Just Not just Toad, like, being so enamored with his costume that he tells him to deal and hits himself with the mutton, but the fact he just jumps out of the... Fr- jumps through the frickin' window for absolutely no reason! <laughs> so, our protagonists realize they're getting nowhere fast. And so they spy on and spot a spectral figure creep in through a secret door. And due to his bigger nature, they just assume that it's Badger. Yeah, and that his slow gait is a result of gout. The weasel reasons the same thing. But then the spectral figure floats, 
and the lightning reveals it to be a haunted suit of armor. To which, while watching this, Toad reasons that it must be done with wires. Yeah, everyone else, though, is convinced. Especially when the ghost armor splits in two, and one of the ghosts turns into a bat! But, of course, Toad is still like, Oh, he's using mirrors now! Jelly, what? (laughs) And then Badger pops up behind them, as the weasels decide the action is too hot for them, and they vominos. I I do like when Badger comes in, and he's just like, How's it going? How's it going? And they shush him as... (laughs) And compliment his amazing, amazing haunting abilities, despite the fact he's right behind them. Yeah. Toad even asks Badger how he did it. And then Badger, Mole, and Rat realize it's a real ghost, and they faint. And Toad is considerably slower on the uptake. Wondering who it is, and is completely unbothered with it being a ghost. Also, why does the ghost have to use a secret passage if it's a ghost? I don't know. But the ghost re-emerges from said secret passage on a motorcycle. And then he sheds the armor to reveal it's the spirit of Great Uncle Charles. Which, of course, excites Toad because, as we've mentioned, Toad gives no Fs. <laughs> yeah. And neither does Uncle Charles. Nope, it seems to run in the family. Yeah. We close our cartoon with Toad and his ghostly uncle riding off on the fire truck, loving every second of the siren. Yeah, I, I I do love that scene. It's like, even though there is a is a slight continuity error in his speech, uh, Toad says that you push a button for the siren when in fact it's not a button. It's a yeah, crank. Yeah, it's a crank. But, but oh well, it's still great where he's just like, oh, and check this out. <laughs> and he does it and Uncle Charles is like, oh, jolly what? Great that. <laughs> so that concludes our synopsis of what you can generally expect with this show. and. Uh, I've got a bit of a theory. I think this cartoon was 10 years too late. I I think I agree. I think this show would have worked probably better alongside shows like Rocky and Bullwinkle and whatnot. Yeah, it's that format. It's that style of humor. It's that style of animation, quite frankly, too. I'd say this is animated better than Rocky and Bullwinkle. Better, yeah. But And if it was a contemporary of theirs... I can guarantee you it wouldn't be lost media. People would be holding it up as a masterpiece. But coming out in 1970, when most of Saturday Morning Kid Vid was Scooby-Doo, Archie's, and similar programs, this style had kind of fallen out of favor. And it's a real pity, because I freaking love this show. It is so good. It is. It is absolutely worth tracking down. Just, I, I hope some at some point the rest of the episodes get found and listed. Uh, it makes me wonder if uh, wonder if DreamWorks might actually have the episodes and they're just setting on them. It's possible, but yeah, if if you haven't gotten the idea yet, go seek these episodes out. Even if you just want to laugh at having the bull, you dumbhead. Oh! <laughs> I, I I do want to say one thing about this show. Man, okay. I wish I could give as little Fs as Mr. Toad. <laughs> I am envious of his ability to just not give a crap. <laughs> well, be careful. You may wind up with one F you can't disregard. The FBI. Woof! 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 Big oof! So, 
But no, I really like this show. I think it's really good. Also for this, I, I think for the seventies, it's animated pretty good too. Yeah, thanks to yeah. Uh, Mushi Studios, and Coker's designs just look great. Mm-hmm. And we will see more of his designs. We will see more of Mushi Studios, and we will see plenty more Rankin Bass. We, we're planning on doing one of their holiday specials uh, in time for Christmas. And well, there's one other thing people probably think of when they hear Rankin Bass. Thundercats. Thunder. Thunder. Thundercats. Which is probably the, well, that and Silver Hawks and, uh, what is it, Tiger Sharks are probably Tiger the Sharks. least, rank, yeah, are probably the least Rankin Bass filling Rankin Bass shows overall. Yeah. And eventually, one of these days, we're also going to do Rankin Bass's biggest cult classic, The Last Unicorn. That's a good show. Not to mention, we could also do their version of The Hobbit at some point. Oh, yes, yes. Like we said, Rankin-Bass is such a strange beast. Uh, or there's a, they also did a King Kong cartoon that actually had a animation by Toei. Yeah. a really big name studio now. All together now, they're on the list. I, I need to get... Actually, this reminds me that Baker's a big fan of uh, Rankin-Bass, so I need to grab some of the uh, pilots he has, because there's a couple of pilots they did as uh, TV specials that were intended to be like made in the series but weren't picked up. And one is a, a cartoon anthropomorphic interpretation of the uh, Red Baron, except they're like all dogs. Oh, oh and uh, in a few weeks, we will have uh, Rankin-Bass's other 1970 Saturday morning offering, which is somehow even more ambitious than this. But we'll get to that later. In the meantime... We gotta go restock the breakfast cereal. See ya! The opinion changed to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast! Jolly what? The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Shawn Michael Smith.